What makes leaders tick? In the Arena Podcast delves into the inner workings and personal dynamics of leadership. We'll shine a light on the life-shaping experiences and perspectives of leaders who have navigated adversity and moved their organizations and themselves forward. Defining moments, lessons learned, and points of inspiration provide a roadmap for these conversations of a lifetime. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the program. Joining us today in the arena is the recently retired president and CEO of ProMedica, Randy Ostra. Let me give you some background about our guest. Randy grew up in Sioux Center, Iowa, which is a small town located in northwest Iowa. He earned his Bachelor of Science in Biology at Northwestern College, a Master's in Healthcare Administration from the University of Minnesota, MBA at the University of Wisconsin, and Doctorate in Management from Case Western University. For the first 15 years of his career, Randy worked as a hospital consultant, administrator, and vice president. In 1997, he joined ProMedica Health System as a vice president overseeing strategic planning. He moved on to be the chief operating officer for four years and then for 13 years served as the president and CEO. During his 13-year tenure as CEO, Randy was instrumental in expanding ProMedica's service provider footprint and quality healthcare initiatives for the region. Randy oversaw ProMedica's 13 hospitals, thousands of employees, and a multi-billion dollar budget. Working with civic and business leaders, he embraced the anchor institution approach that made ProMedica a driving force in Toledo's downtown revitalization. Randy has been active in numerous boards, including the Toledo Art Museum, Regional Growth Partnership, Toledo Symphony, and the Connect Toledo Downtown Development Corporation. He has received many prestigious awards, including being named one of Modern Healthcare's 100 Most Influential People and Becker's Healthcare, 100 Great Leaders to Know in Healthcare. In 2019, Randy was the recipient of the Jefferson Award for Public Service and represented Toledo at the National Awards Ceremony in Washington, D.C. And I could go on a lot more with your awards, Randy, but I just, I, 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 I broke them down to some key ones. Mm. Sounds like I'm getting old. That's what happens in life, you know, right. Yeah. So you're about six weeks post-retirement. Have you been able to exhale and just, after 40 plus years in healthcare? Yeah, you know, um, uh, fortunate to have seen a lot of people retire and a lot of advice from retirees about, you know, taking a deep breath, don't overcommit, don't do anything for six months. Um, I was just telling you, I uh, had a coffee before this and I was, um, I screwed up my calendar. So I'm learning how to, you know, I had a lot of people who who have helped me over the years and made me successful. And uh, uh, now you're just on your own. And for for my wife and I, it's just another phase of life. You know, my um, dad worked till he was 85. So I'm going to be 68 here soon. So I'm figuring uh, hopefully I've got another 15, 20 years of the next chapter. Of life. There's another chapter. Right? Another chapter. Another right. chapter. Yeah. My dad always said that retirement wasn't a biblical concept and a uh, very religious family. And uh, there's some truth to that. You know, I think when you think about um, kind of that next phase of life, things you can do right. to continue to make an impact wherever you're passionate about. I think, you know, uh, when I think about retirement, I think that's that's kind of the, the secret to keep that purpose in life. Well, you mentioned your dad, and it seems like we should start at your first chapter, and that is uh, Sioux Center growing up there in, in Iowa. Because I've seen you in various formats talk about your parents, hardworking, uh, first-generation immigrants. Uh, I've also, you've, you've talked about the Christian Reformed Church, that the impact, and then also just growing up modest means. Right. And... Uh, those early determinants kind of were a foundation for things later on for you. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of, it's kind of the American story of immigrant families. And, you know, I think you've probably heard this from a lot of folks. We grew up poor, just didn't know it, you know, and a very religious community. Um, Northwest Iowa is a bubble and it's deep rooted in the Dutch tradition. A lot of uh, church of the from the Reformation called the Christian Reformed Church, mm-hmm. which uh, a Reformed Christian Reformed, actually was the state religion of Holland. So when people came as immigrants, they took that with mm-hmm. with them. Uh, in school, we we got out of school to go to catechism at church. Um, you know, midday. Uh, yeah, but we we 
teachers would take us to the church and, uh, you know, we, we'd go to catechism. We had blue laws, so nothing was open on Sundays. Um, mm. My brother worked in a swimming pool that opened from one to five and actually had to go to the church with my parents because he was actually working a couple hours on a Sunday after a big deal and very traumatic at the time. And so now, again, you just look at that. Um, but it was really great. I mean, it was a great faith-based community. Um, and, and to be honest, I mean, my wife and I have struggled ever since that because uh, we grew up very uniquely, um, you know, in a very doctrinally focused approach. And then as we moved around, you know, mm -hmm. over 40 years of marriage, um, we realized we grew up fairly unique and we've struggled a bit to figure out how do you rationalize that, you know, with today. Wow. What type of kid were you growing up? You know, um, you know, my parents were immigrants, no education. Um, I think I had my first job maybe in the fourth or fifth grade. Which um, was what? Um, I worked in a, um, a, this is Iowa now, a livestock sale barn. So this is where they sell uh, livestock. On Friday nights, as a little kid, I was, I penned cattle or, or they sold cattle. And so what happened is they'd go through a sales ring and then they would drive the cattle to a, a gate. And I was a young man and huddled up in, in wintertime, especially in, in a coat. And I'd open the gate and they would drive these cattle either by people walking or motorcycles, actually. And then on Saturday Your timing morning, had to be really good. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, you, you know, and I did that. And then uh, it's, I look back on it now. I, people probably get in trouble now for letting you make your kids do that. And then uh, there were places where there'd be straw bales where I could kind of, because um, it was cold, that I could go into these little huts right. to keep warm. And uh, they bring me hot chocolate and everything. So I did that. And then on Saturday mornings, we would clean. Uh, I, I had the nice job of being inside. So I cleaned where they people would sit to buy cattle and things. And so I did that from 7 a.m. to 2 o'clock on Saturday. So I kind of grew up that way, um, went to a parochial school, and then um, went to a public high school and uh, got into sports. And, you know. Um, you played football in college, but did you play other sports? You know, I did. Um, Played uh, basketball early, uh, wasn't a really very good basketball player, um, did a lot. I was a shot putter, mm -hmm. and then um, also mainly football. So, And then I did play for Northwestern for four years yeah. as well. Yeah. What about a teacher during your K-12 experience that had lasting impact on you? You know, um, there were several. Um, you know, had a couple. Um, they were coaches, but they were, they were teachers. So one guy was named Mel Churchma, who... Um, he was a coach, um, he's a phys ed instructor, um, actually created, um, we won a state championship when I was mm. a senior in high school, first one in the first state championships in Iowa, it was all because of him, and a real positive force, really, um, uh, you know, he went on to coach in college, went down to Texas, uh, coached in college, had a really long career, a very charismatic, motiv motivational guy, and then a, another gentleman named Chuck Feaster, who um, was, he well, wasn't Dutch, and he was fascinated by the Dutch. And uh, one quick story, uh, at halftime of a game, he was hitting my shoulder pads with a clipboard, and he used to yell at us, you know, mm -hmm. you got to get these stubborn Dutchmen to, uh, to get angry. And uh, he got in big trouble for it because people thought he was hitting me over the head, you know. So he's hitting me on the shoulder pads. And so people like, he pushed me all the time, and he was a, a shot putter coach, and he just... Um, he rode you. He rode, yeah, all the time, all the time, in a really good way, right. and that very, uh, but it had a real impact, and both of them created, for me at least, you know, this idea that you could do something, you had the ability to do anything you wanted to, Right. and growing up in an immigrant family, it was just like, keep your head down, keep your mouth shut, work hard, get a good job, and so they were very motivational and inspirational in my life. What position did you play football-wise? I was a nose guard on defense, a linebacker a little bit, and then on we played both sides, so, and I was an offensive center. Right. Yeah. And then how did you decide your, deci your decision to go to college? How did you enter into that? Yeah, you know, again, not a lot of resources. You know, I had to kind of make your own way. Um, I'd looked at a couple different colleges, and uh, this Northwestern College was close, and um, at that point I had a couple different jobs. I could keep doing my jobs while I was in school. Was one of them meatpacking? Didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked to lug, lug pork at night um, in a place called Supreme Packing, which is a tough environment with 
right. in those days with lugging pork and truck drivers from all over. The, uh, it was really interesting. There were truck drivers that would come from all over the United States and very different. Um, I learned a lot, sure. a lot of bad things uh, that they would roll in from these you know, truck drivers all over the country and uh, very different than how I grew up. And then I was a lifeguard for probably six years of my life. So I worked a lot in an indoor pool and then outdoor in the summers. And you got a biology degree. So were you intending to go in some type of medical service providing position? Um, you know, initially I was going to be a high school teacher. And again, this was Chuck Feaster. I was going to be a coach. And um, I was going to get a science degree. Um, I like the sciences. Uh, that morphed into being wanting to be a physical therapist mm -hmm. around sports. I got to college and it just, in high school, you play with your friends and I got to college. It wasn't that I didn't like the people I played with and I just didn't think that was right for me for the rest of my life, that I really just didn't want to do, would be a coach. That yeah. was my, and uh, at that point that I had a pivot and I had a great mentor in college who convinced me to go do some other things. Eventually you did, um, you, you got a master's degree and there was a point where you needed to get some money. So that's why you entered into the healthcare field. And in, in my understanding is that you did some traveling during that time where you went to, whether it be small towns in Nebraska and Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, and you did various consulting and hospitals, but you also visit uh, Indian reservations. Right. Yeah, you know, um, my advisor in college, uh, Dr. Vinak, he said, um, I, I student taught, decided I didn't want to teach in high school. Because I was teaching, you know, in a high school, and I had to teach the same lecture four or five times. So, what, what did you teach? Uh, science, sciences, yeah, yeah. sciences. Okay. Um, actually, it was funny because the my first thing I ever taught, and it, I look back on the teacher who was supervised me, was sex education, uh, which was really that for, was the first. That was the first thing he gave me to teach, and I was paralyzed. That's impossible. It was impossible. <laughs> uh, but Dr. Vanek, uh, after I said it, you know, wasn't I was didn't know if I wanted to be this teacher coach. He had a doctorate in microbiology, and he said, why don't you do what I did, you know, become a med tech, great lab back, go get a doctorate in um, microbiology and teach at a college level. So I thought that sounded good. My brother and older sister were teachers. And then um, I got a master's degree, and then um, I needed a little bit of money to go get a doctorate, and I ended up moving back to Iowa to teach in a hospital. I met my wife, and so then I thought, well, I'll work for a few years, and I... Um, Worked for a group of physicians. There was a, a, a physician, a guy named Carl Wagner, who grew up in South Dakota but went to Harvard, and then he went back to South Dakota to try to make an impact on people's lives and try to create a healthcare company. It's owned by physicians, and so a lot of my time was traveling. So the Dakotas, uh, Nebraska, Minnesota, and Iowa. My wife worked for a bank software company called Burroughs and did bank software. So... We used to say we knew every small town in the Midwest because that's where their career was. And then for about five years, we would fly out of Sioux Falls because you can't drive it, take days. Right. To, and we'd go to the Indian reservations, which um, a lot of stories there and uh, gets generational poverty mm -hmm. um, and had a big impact on me. Just places that um, great people, generational poverty. Um, you know, you could talk a lot about how our, how America's invested in mm -hmm. some of these communities and, and the lack of investment. So that was really quite an eye-opener. And then one day I was flying with Carl Wagner, and he asked me, what are you going to do when you're 50 years old? And, and you were 28. At the I was time. 28. Right. <laughs> and I've told that story before, and I and we were in a, a, a twin-engine plane that day because when the doctors went, we flew in twin-engine planes. When I went alone, it was a single-engine plane, So, <laughs> but they're loud. And I remember yelling at him, like, what? And, and it was kind of like, what are you asking me not? What did you say? And he said, well, if you think you're going to be doing this, you know, 22 years from now, I'll be disappointed in you. Mm. And uh, so we went through a series of discussions. I, I didn't travel with him all the time, but we talked about different things. So I actually um, thought about law schools, took the LSATs, applied to some law schools, thought about Christian counseling, uh, took some counseling classes, classes at a seminary. That wasn't for me. And then looked at hospital administration. And that's where we ended up. And then how did the uh, opportunity, and I'm skipping over a couple of steps, how did the opportunity for ProMedica come? Yeah, you know, um, so I started, again, this was all, my wife and I were traveling at that point, and um, we traveled a lot, and we started to have a family, and we thought, like, we can't keep doing this either, and then right. uh, Dr. Wagner kind of prompted us. So we 
um, sold our house, sold our cars, dropped our insurance, and with one child and another one right on the way, um, went back to an apartment in Minneapolis. Talk about a leap of faith. Yeah. You know, I th- we look back on that, it was, you would never want your kids to do that. My father-in-law was a pretty stoic guy. He didn't say much of it. He seemed unhappy. You're and doing I know. what with my daughter? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And later in life, he said it worked out okay. Uh, and, you know, at the time, it, we always looked at those years. Um, we sold our our house and said, whatever money we have from that, we're going to put away. Uh, and so we're just going to live on what we make. And we cobbled together some jobs. Um, we ended up cleaning our apartment building for free rent. And so we did about it. But we always thought, think about those days very simple, um, basic. We went to a lot of free stuff. We rode the buses. And we always say uh, it was probably one of the you know times of life where life was very simple and easy mm-hmm. it was great it was great years and the promedica door opened oh yeah how? so um we started in minnesota um i worked for a system that's now called alina but it was called health one in those days uh, could have stayed there and my wife kept saying you know I, I think we should leave and i think you'd have more opportunities so we went to grand rapids michigan uh to a place called blodgett we were there six years it's um they merged with a couple times they were called Spectrum. Now they just merged with Beaumont, so mm-hmm. they've become quite a large. And we were there, and then there was a merger. And the best I could figure out, I was the youngest exec of about 15, and we thought, this isn't going to go well. <laughs> and so we left right away and then went to St. Louis, Sisters of Mercy. And then one of the Blodgett men uh, that was there um, was a guy named Bill Glover. He was the president of Flower. So he called one day and said, hey, you remember me, I interviewed you, we didn't work together, you're unhappy, you want to come to Toledo, Ohio. And so at that time, I was very unhappy in my job uh, in St. Louis, and so we said whatever job would come first. So I was interviewing in Chicago, in Toledo, in Norfolk, Virginia, and ended up coming to Toledo. And Bill was, um, assur- I was assured that he was going to become the next CEO, and he didn't get the job. <laughs> so uh, all the things we talked about were out the door very quickly, so then it was like, oh no, now what? And it all worked out. And you entered at a pretty high level when you came to ProMedica, charge of strategic plan. Did at that point did you have aspirations to be in the corner office, or did just things kind of evolve? Yeah, never. You know, when I went to Minnesota, all my classmates were going to run the world, and I just, I, my, my wife and I, we just didn't want to travel, and we just wanted a good, good life. Never uh, aspired for that. But then um, at Minnesota, that was kind of their mantra. You know, they they were like, we train CEOs of big things, blah, mm. blah, blah. And so I, I was always, um, so we were a little older at the time. At that point, right. we were in our 30s. So I'd have these 22-year-old classmates talking about how they're going to be, you know, run the world in five years. And I'm thinking like, you know, boy, you know, pretty cocky. Uh, and uh, anyway, so it all worked out, but never aspirationally thought that, you know, uh, you hope and, you know, think, well, hey. Yeah. And what I learned along the way is um, if you aspire to it, you should tell people you aspire to it. And then it's the idea of, you know, grace of God, and if it works out, great. That's what I aspire to do. It may not work. And so, yeah, it, it, it all ended up working out. We almost moved a couple times from Toledo uh, for a variety of reasons, but we ended up uh, staying, and it worked out. So we could talk a lot about healthcare and models and stuff like that, but that's maybe for another another time. But you... Uh, really embrace the social determinants aspects. How did you really get turned on to that? Well, you know, I think a lot of it goes back to religious roots, you know, and, and thinking about making impacts on people's. Um, you know, I still, to this day, think about those trips in those public health service hospitals and the people I talked to, the people I worked with, uh, people who left and went back to generational poverty for family reasons and all that. And so just seeing some of the things there, you know, as a young person at a big impact, you know, uh, in my my life. And then, um, we started to do some things. Um, there was, there was always a group of us that really thought we should do more in the community. Uh, this goes back, you know, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then, um, we started to do some things around obesity and, um, the board invested in some, uh, work, work with threat learning to create some great game boards. Jim Howden. Yeah. And so they created these great, um, maps and things. We're going to go in and, and teach kids how to eat healthier. And after about 90 days, the people that were doing the work said, can we meet? And these kids are hungry. And our response was, well, wait, wait, wait. we didn't sign up for hunger. We signed up to make kids eat. And then they go, well, it doesn't matter. They, they, they don't have food. And so um, ended up um, spending some time in the hunger community. 
and um, you know, um, share our strength, uh, feeding America, um, you know, AARP, um, mobile meals. We talked to them all. Went to the USDA and and um, uh, Lion Stand Hunger, Bread for the World, and they all said the same thing. What are you doing here? Never talked to healthcare people before. It was Barpedi and I that were were going, and then a guy named David Beckham who ran Bread for the World, who's a who's a very social justice sort of individual, mm-hmm. a little bit in your face at times. Yeah. So after about 10 minutes, he goes, where have you been? You know, and then he launched into hunger as a health issue. and Meaning you're the biggest provider. Yeah. You're the biggest employer in Toledo. Where have you been? Yeah. Well, or even like, where's healthcare been? Oh, where's healthcare And he had been? never thought about that. And he goes, this is, this, is the, this is a key to help solve world hunger is we've been talking it, uh, about a well, we, we've, in this country, we get these welfare debates about hunger. And it's actually one of the, it is the premier health issue. Healthy moms, healthy babies. It starts right there. And so we need to do more. And so we started working with him. And then you fast forward, that work just built um, over a decade. You know, things like COVID, of course, changed the entire sure. world. So yeah. that's it's a little different time now. But really, and then just got a lot of support and just a lot of um, the people that I work with at Prometica who have great respect for it. It, it was in their heart. I mean, this is the work that they wanted to do. And I think, you know, you would argue that people in education, you know, have a special heart. I would argue that people in healthcare also have a special heart. And a lot of them are really mission-based and they, they go into it for all the right reasons. And this is kind of basic, taking care of your neighbors, taking care of people in need. And uh, so it really kind of fit um, who is, we were and what we wanted to do. Is there one determinant that if you had to pick one, say that's uh, that's not more important, but this really resonates with you as far as it needs to be addressed. Yeah, you know, the one that, that, that I would point to is hunger. So, you know, we, we've had the, the privilege of going to a lot of places across the country. You know, people probably don't realize Prometica's impact across the country in this space. And uh, to talk, and they go, well, you know, you talk to boards, and they're like, well, where do we start? And we'd always say start with hunger because it's pretty practical. I can sure. give you food. Now, that's yeah. not going to solve your life issues, but I practically can give you food. And then, oh, by the way, if I can work with you to help help you try to, you know, address these barriers in life to make sure that you can do the type of things that you want to do for your family and provide the opportunities. So it was very, um, uh, very tangible. We had a one quick story, um, thought we would get some pushback from physicians. And there was um, a meeting, and um, we just started to roll it out. And I kept telling people, let's not talk about this work. Let's just do it real quietly. And a physician was there, and he raised his hand and said, I want to talk about this hunger stuff. And I thought, oh, man, here we go. It's going to be negative. And then he told a story about a retired partner who um, came in, screened positive for uh, food insecurity. One of their former partners. And they're like, what the heck happened here? And then had a bunch of problems in life. And really, I think, just resonated with people that these were the type of things. And then you, we could talk about healthcare a lot. We have such a messed up healthcare system in America. Costs a fortune. It's unaffordable. It's a cause of bankruptcy. And yet, we don't pay any attention to these social issues, which have a lot more impact on people's lives. How that happened, is, it's clear when you look at how healthcare evolved. It's just not right. Yeah. And so there are increasing voices to say this needs to change. Your leadership approach, uh, Randy, I mean, ProMedica is sprawling as far, it's a big organization. What was your approach in guiding the ship? Yeah, you know, I think it just, it still goes back to some basics of, you know, just making the best impact you can. Um, I think what you learn and um, you you learn how to talk, you know, I mean, that wasn't, if you look at... um, uh, my high school classmates would laugh if they would say, how did you ever get that job? That's ridiculous. And I think you just learn, you learn to do things. You learn to, you know, um, I've had great mentors, you know. Um, one of my mentors told me early on, you know, um, at some point you need to, uh, this was his words, tie your top buttons, troll to the podium, and, and paint a vision for people. Mm. And I always think about those, those sort of things always resonate with me. It's like, yeah, at some point they want to hear from their leaders um, something aspirational, something yeah. that they can believe in. And then you begin to look at communities like, you know, Northwest Ohio, Toledo, uh, a lot of cities this size have, have really significant social issues. And the fact that healthcare hasn't played a larger role than they should or could, 
um, you know, it was it was those things. So, you know, uh, again, when you think about servant leadership and yeah. everything you read there and your desire to lead is because of service. And, you know, I think when you think about that, um, it's really, I think, has motivated a lot of people. And I, I'm, I'm fortunate um, that a lot of my colleagues at Prometic had the same heart. And I can start naming people, yeah. uh, some that you've had on your show. Uh, that that really have a great heart for these sort of things. And then a board, uh, the boards were very, very supportive. So big tribute to them. Um, and again, I think w- when you think about community people and being on a board, why do you do that? Yeah. You want to make an impact. Right. You want to do good things. Right. So I think people come to that naturally, not everyone, but by their heart. And so, um, it, and then a lot of it is, can we do this? Should we do this? Can we afford this work? And then we were fortunate enough to get some help along the way. Yeah. Let's pick up on that idea of uh, the role of being a, a good communicator in a leadership and conveying, painting that picture that you described. And you've done a lot of speaking. I mean, you've done TED Talks and you've uh, been on, you've spoken at national state conferences and you also had to talk to business groups. And so when you go to speak, how did, how did you approach that? How did you prepare for a speech? Yeah, you know, I'm, um, I was, it's funny because people go, oh, you know, um, uh, you're really good at this. Because you don't yeah. use notes. Yeah, and so um, I uh, I prepare um, like um, I was in California last week speaking at a group. And the night before, I already room service, and I spent four hours looking over what I was going to talk the next day. And it's not only what the talk is, it's just kind of related things and try to keep up to date. So it's, it's a lot of preparation. I think a lot of times when you talk to pastors and churches or educators or people who speak a lot, I mean, they put in the time. And so I've always, you know, I think, I think I've always thought the key was to be really well prepared. Yeah. And, Did, uh, do you have any rehearsal techniques? Yeah, I always rehearse. I've always rehearsed, um, looking at time, trying to you know, and then again, as TED Talks became, you know, how do you keep them, yeah, you know, minutes. how do you tell a story? You know, um, I heard somebody speak uh, a couple of years ago and was talking about, you know, he was talking about um, inequities in healthcare. And he was saying, you know, um, facts don't matter, stories do. And he was saying, there's all these facts about healthcare being, not doing great things and inequities, and we don't do anything about it. But then you have a powerful story, like a George Floyd, it changes the world. So it's like, more recently, like how do you tell a story, you know, a motivational story that's going to impact people and grab their attention? And yeah, you told the story about an optometrist in your youth. Yeah, Doctor Vermeer. I yeah, think. Bob Vermeer. Yeah, describe that. Go through that one again. So again, you know, uh, parents not a lot of money. Uh, kid with bad eyesight from day one. Um, I had glasses in kindergarten. You know, you know, um, we joke in our family that you know we all have the same vision gene. So. Uh, and uh, so he was, um, you know, just different. So, you know, parents that were just salt of the earth and just, but again, um, really never went to school, um, never went to school. Uh, I, for a long time, didn't think my dad could read. Um, and I, he kind of picked it up and they just didn't have the opportunity. And then they were oldest kids and immigrant families, they were forced to work, right. or, or, you know, and so my dad was actually raised by another family and the family paid money back to his parents till he was 18 years old. Mm. And so, you know, when you, you, you begin to look at that, you see the impact um, that education has on people's lives. And so, yeah, it's just a great, you know, uh, great way to do it. And you personalize that. Yeah, too. yeah. And people could relate to it. If not, all of us have some type of Dr. Vermeer that right. had that impact. Yeah, so he, um, early on, he would, you know, I broke my glasses a lot. Again, glasses weren't very good. And it was always traumatic because my parents didn't have a lot of money. And I spent a lot of time with Dr. Vermeer. And um, when I got to be, um, you know, he always showed up, he had a white coat and had a tie on. And from, like from a little kid, I remember him just, just a really super nice person. I, it wasn't unique to me, but he's yeah. just a great guy. And then when I got to high school, um, we would have, and go there for my appointments, and we'd go to his office and talk. Sometimes a half an hour. And then I realized later um, he actually carved out time on his schedule. And then I got to college and um, he followed this football team that I played on and was always really encouraging about professional careers. And uh, he used to have a saying on the wall about, you know, um, having eyesight but having vision and the importance of having vision, not, not eyesight. And he, he would always talk about that and just having a vision for the future. So, yeah, just one of those early impacts and was fortunate in life to have a number of those type of people. 
couple other state. I'm going to use your own words here. Just react to these. Make a plan, then execute the plan. Yep. Yeah, it's always like, um, and um, I think people that um, that I've worked with over the years would say it was a bit of a pain because, you know, it's like people would walk into this trap every single time. It's like, okay, you think you can do X, Y, Z? Yes, I can. Uh, can you put a plan together? Yes, I can. Can you, we can put the plan together. Need, need, need 30 days? I can get a plan done in 30 days. You know they can't, but they do it every single time. I can get a plan in 30 days. Okay, you take a plan back here in 30 days. And again, um, I had a great mentor, uh, Terry O'Rourke, and he viewed life as a hardware store. And so when you walk out of a room, you shut off the lights, if there are nails on the floor, you pick up the nails, and everything was about business plans. Mm. And so I spent six years with him. Um, I've told this story a lot. He would send me out to do business plans, and then I would do a business plan, and he and I would go back and forth. And I used to joke with him that someday I'm going to give you a business plan, and you're going to say, I don't have any questions. Never happened. And then what happened is after a while, he'd say, okay, you got this business plan. Summarize this business plan into one slide. Put it on a a Mm two-by-two. And so that's kind of how he presented. And um, he had a lot of things. Probably a person, even though I wasn't that close to him, but modeled a lot of what I thought about. And everything with him was a plan with numbers and strategy. And to this day, you know, you talk to people like, that's a great idea. Put it in paper. Yeah. Put a plan together. So he put he held your feet to the fire. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And then he would send me off, and he let me off to let me out to people outside of our our hospital to do business plans for. And I learned a lot. Learned a lot. Good leadership is creating urgency and then getting out of the way. Yep. Yeah, you know, um, um, I always think about every day when you're going to work. What's what's your mantra? And it's like you got to create urgency. And so that's you know John Cotter's book, Leading Change. Mm-hmm. And I you know you really think about it, and then there is um. Uh, you know, if you look at servant leadership and it's the, you know, telling people it's okay. So you kind of vacillate between pushing people and pushing the organization, encouraging, creating urgency, telling them it's okay, it'll be fine. But it's always like, how do you, how do you push to the next level? So every year when you do strategy, like, hey, what's new? You know, what's the new wrinkle? What's the new thing? What are we going to inspire people to do? And we know a lot of organizations, it's the same um, same strategic plan every year. They change a few words. But every year we'd sit down like, hey, what's the next thing? What's the new thing? And then for Prometica, I think um, aspirationally, we move from how do we move to how do we move um, to more of a national stage? How do we begin to think about being national? And how do we begin to, you know, based here in Ohio, uh, in Michigan, but how do we really do things on a larger scale? And, um, you know, COVID slowed us down quite dramatically mm-hmm. and made a, um, the impact on the country is just massive yeah. um, for people don't follow it. And uh, so, yeah, that slows things down. But, the, but that was always this idea about getting up every day and creating urgency. This kind of reflects what I see as your true north. It's are you preparing a resume or preparing your eulogy? Yeah. That's a big picture statement. Yeah. yeah. When, you, when did, how did you use that? Yeah, you know, um, I think, you know, um, again, I go back to when graduate school and you know, all people wanted was, you know, hey, I, I want to get to this level. I want to make this sort of money. I want this power. And I think, again, just um, think about how you grow up in life and, you know, the opportunities that you have. I mean, uh, these these jobs come um, with influence and opportunity, and you have to make an impact. Right. And so it's your eulogy that, okay, well, you belong to this board or you did this money or you did all these things. Or did you really somewhere make an impact outside of the normal? And um, uh, there was a good friend, Frank Dick, just passed away yeah, up in Michigan. Great, great man, guy, great, great guy. Man. You talk about a person who made an impact on people. Yeah. And um, Calvin Lauschi was another one mm-hmm. from from Toledo. You know, church packed, and every uh, someone made the comment at his, his uh, in his eulogy was like, and we all thought we were Calvin's best friend, and the <laughs> entire church laughed. And I've been to, I've been to uh, funerals with. People with a lot more prestigious and jobs and want more money. And there's 20 people in the church. And you look at Frank Dick and the Calvin Lauschies of the world. And those are people who, they, they weren't trying to create a eulogy, but what they were trying to do is impact people. Yeah. And they did that in so many different and gifted ways, yeah. whether it was philanthropic or of their time or, or the things that they did in life. And uh, they were also great mentors and great people. And uh, they weren't doing it, you know, uh, they probably would have been embarrassed at their funerals, but yeah. but but it's that kind of thing. It's just like you know, hey, 
if it's only about the resume and the titles, then, then we're doing this thing wrong. Spirituality, obviously, is very important to you, Randy. How does that, how does that woven into your leadership path and your leadership approach? I guess servant leadership is probably yeah. the... Yeah, so that's always been a bit of a dynamic. You know, I grew up in a strong Christian family. My wife grew up in the same area of Iowa, so very strong with the same college, even mm-hmm. though we didn't meet till later. And so that's always been a big part of who we are. Um, you know, we grew up debating doctrine, you know, and so um, that was unique. So, you know, we, uh, but, but the beauty of it was it was a framework for belief. And so that was really, really positive. And so always a lot of, of faith has been through servant leadership. And again, I think when you think about basic needs and social needs, uh, I really think that goes to, to faith. And what, what biblical stories really are your favorites? You know, um, so um, I just finished a book, um, and it is a book about Christian leadership, and it's following the greatest leader ever, Jesus Christ. So his, historians will all agree that Jesus Christ existed. People disagree on who he was, but there's enough history. Everything you see in leadership was exhibited by Christ. I mean, change the world, change the world calendar, everything from inspiring leaders with, with you know, disciples to leading change, leading one of the most massive changes in our world. Uh, one of my favorite stories is the woman at the well. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is talking over. So, so again, when you think about diversity and inclusion uh, for for a, a Jewish male to talk to a Samaritan woman was a big deal. It just was frowned on. Right. And uh, he um, was talking to her and asked her for some water. And then um, um, she, I can't remember exactly how many times she'd been married or, or had lived kind of a, a life that was a bit sordid, I guess. And uh, Christ didn't judge her. Um, what he said to her was he, she, he was telling her about her life. And she was shocked, of course. And all he said to her is, well, sin no more. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not looking at your past. Just sin no more. Try to live, live a better mm-hmm. life. And so I've always looked, that's what are probably one of my more favorite stories uh, in the Bible. Because I think it's just this idea, like, it's so easy to judge people. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to, and, and it gets harder, I think, when we think about the social issues of our days. And so even as a Christian, I, I know some of the scriptures, which are hard to reconcile some mm-hmm. days. And yet, um, it's really about how you treat people. And so I always, I always think of that. And it's like, well, sin no more. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to condemn you. Um, and oh, by the way, um, I'm here and I feel, I feel your pain. I'm, I have empathy for you. And so I think that's, that's kind of what I think about Christ and his leadership style. It was like that. Now, there are times he took people on sure, when he was sure. unhappy, especially with the rich rulers, Pharisees. The, the, the Pharisees of the yeah. day. Oh, yeah, he was in their face. And I think that's this great dynamic about you um, have great compassion and empathy, but then you also stand up when you need to stand up. The anchor institution piece, I'm back to now using your leadership position uh, to, for the greater good. And you had this vision that ProMedic could be a big impact to downtown in multiple ways. How did you get everyone to buy into that vision? Because I know you had to work Elected officials, uh, business leaders, civic leaders, just across the board. How did you get that to happen? Or was it just as simple, not as simple, but you saying, we're going to move downtown? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think we, uh, we we get more credit than we're due. There was no master plan. <laughs> you know, it was like we kind of bumped along and figured it out uh, as we went. You know, so um, we, um, um, there's a, there was, a, there's a, um, a group at Prometica, um, you know, now that I've gone, I'll call them the heart of Prometica, that have aspired for a long time to do these kind of things. And it cuts across the organization. I could name a 50-person group that really fill into that. And they like, with this great opportunities to do some really important things for our community and work with others who have already done that work and come alongside them. And so the first idea was like, well, let's go downtown. You know, let's see if we can pull off moving our all our offices. We had 22 offices at the time, 20-some offices scattered all around. We were in a very corporate setting on Richards Road. I didn't like that setting. So we were able to figure out a, a financial way to take over the steam plant mm-hmm. through historic tax credits. And um, so that actually went really well. And then the next thing we did is we bought that hotel out of bankruptcy, which I look back today. We wouldn't do it today just because yeah. of the way the world was. And uh, we were 
uh, lucky, we were blessed, and so we were able to flip that hotel, which is the Renaissance yeah. today. We acquired, um, you know, the building from from um, KeyBank, then we acquired the Edison building, and then when HR, HCR came on. And then uh, we did a lot of work in China, so knew the Chinese really well, and then bought the land. No one was going to buy the land that the Metro Parks right. was going to. Yeah. And uh, 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 Paula Hicks' husband was uh, in office at that time, and she was a great supporter of ours, and said, hey, we'll buy it um, with the idea that we'll flip it. And so the idea of anchor institutions, anchored in place, you have resources, you use your resources. This is where people get a little confused um, and would criticize us. So when we bought the hotel, uh, we got out of bankruptcy and we got our money back. When we went to the Metro Parks um, or went to the land across the river, we bought the land, sold it ultimately to yeah. Frank Cass, the developer, and the Metro Parks got our money back. We ended up buying Ford Industry Square uh, from a developer who sat on it for 20 years uh, from California, nice man, and flipped it to Kevin Prater and he developed it today. So. It's almost like, a, I always call it like an HGTV show, you know, where you flip things. Right. And we were fortunate enough, we, we and again, we didn't, we didn't want to interest, we just wanted our money back. Yeah. And so people would say even today, like, oh, they had no business doing all that stuff. But that's what anchor institutions do. They can't do it every year. Um, economics right now and healthcare are tough. So you can't do it right now, but you can still do a lot of those sort of things. And um, yeah, I will say Prometic is a bit unique. Uh, when I tell that story, the things we did, mm. um, we bought and closed a strip club downtown Toledo. We did a variety of things like that, things that people um, probably aren't aware of. And we think that we thought at the time these are all the right things to do. Uh, and so what it did is it spurred, and part of the thought with the board was, we don't need to do this forever, but if we can help create some momentum, and then you know a strategic plan came out of that, the 22nd Century Committee and the Downtown Business Group Connect Toledo, and then again, it's just coming along. I mean, there are a lot of people that were there before, you know, the Huntington Center, the Mud Hens, Owens Corning, Highland, I can go on. They, they in the warehouse district. So there were great, you know, bones there. It just, um, I think we played a bit of a role in being a catalyst at that time. Yeah. Walking uh, along the riverfront has to be pretty meaningful for you. It is, you know, and yeah. I think uh, what um, we had some people in this, this summer from California that grew up in Toledo, came back and was blown away by downtown Toledo. You know, it was a concert night. They went up to the heights at the Renaissance. Yeah. And so I think the thing is, there's so many great things going on in Toledo. I mean, just, um, we have just great economic opportunities. Uh, we're a tremendous arts community, mm-hmm. best minor league sports town For in sure. America. The lifestyle is great. Now, uh, we have fundamental neighborhood work to do, and that's what we can't lose sight of. Much people are working on that. That's long, hard work. And but that's that's this. Um, we all want shiny buildings downtown. We want that. But the but the real work is the neighborhood work. There are a lot of good things going on in neighborhoods in Toledo. Not enough. Um, yeah. And we you know be be remiss to say we're doing enough. But we we need to do a lot more of that work and just again help people have an opportunity to live the life they want. So you spent 25 years in senior leadership, uh, the biggest employer in the region. A lot of pressure to that, a lot of stress, uh, challenging times. How, how did you manage that as a leader, personally? Yeah. So my wife and I would say uh, um, we can go back to Minneapolis, meaning we can go back to that lifestyle. Uh, I don't want to, you know, over the last years. But we always like, you know, we came from pretty modest means and modest parents. And, you know, um, uh, we, we're happy to continue to be involved. We're going to stay in Toledo. Um, we have, you know, three sons, three daughter-in-laws, three grandkids. Uh, two of them and our grandkids are here in Toledo. Our son and his wife live in Columbus. We're not going to go anywhere. Right. And so we want to continue to be involved, um, uh, you know, in, in everything in, in Toledo. And, you know, yeah, it's it's a stressful time. And, you know, and then there's, there's a time to leave. So yeah. I probably would have left a little earlier if it hadn't been for COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people would would say, oh, you're 68, you know, you probably should have retired years ago. And like, oh, well, that's a difference of opinion. Um, could I work more years? Yeah, I probably could, but it's just time to do something else. And then uh, Arturo Polizzi followed me, mm-hmm. just a great leader. He left, came back. Uh, the organization's in great hands, you know, like everyone else, they've got their challenges. They'll be fine. They're going to do great work. And, uh, you know, I think the thing I love about Arturo, he's, he's got the same heart that we all do yeah. and, and all the same things. It's just different now. 
just relative to where Toledo is and where 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 healthcare is right now. But right. again, over the next you know five to ten years, um, a lot of good things. And Toledo again, just not being born here, which you know you hear this from everybody, it's a fantastic city. Absolutely. We, um, I would take it over St. Louis, Grand Rapids, Michigan, or Minneapolis any day. Uh, and it's got so many great things. And the pipeline, you know, whether it's, you know, all the things that are underway and some new housing and new, new employment opportunities. Someday there'll be a Jeep museum in Toledo. You know, a bunch of stuff like that that is just when you see. And then a lot of the development work, which is hard to keep track of because there's so much great stuff going on. So it's really, I think the, the future is great. But again, I think I, I'll say that with the idea that this still needs to be a fundamental neighborhood. Yeah. With your re level of responsibility, if you look back of your career, I guess this can be personally too, you've mentioned some inflection points. What's the hardest decision you've had to make or wrestled with? Yeah, I think anytime you have to um, uh, impact people from job loss is always the hardest yeah. thing, you know, and you have to lay people off. Um, and what's, what was really hard about that, and sometimes, you know, you get economic pressures and then you try to explain to people, yeah, we're still doing these strategic things over here, but then we're also going to lay people off. Yeah. And, and there, um, I would love to say there's a way to explain that to people, especially when you're impacted personally. Um, but those are always the hard things that you worry about. And then I always feel bad when you hire people um, and they don't work out because you own, you own that, you know, yeah. and I've had people that I've hired that it just didn't work out. And then you disrupted their life. Uh, they may move to Toledo, and then then what? So you really, I think those are the sort of things um, when you think about those impacts. Uh, those are never easy. And what kind of keep you up, what keeps you up at night? What's the the best advice anyone gave you has ever given you? Oh boy, the best advice. You know, um, you know, I go back to um, probably Carl Wagner, who said, you know, uh, never stop, never stop pushing. Never stopped trying. I mean, he was a physician who moved back from Harvard to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, for a new generation career. And he said, "You've got a, you've got a long, not me personally, but but people have a long bandwidth. So you know, uh, retirement's not a biblical concept. Keep working, keep doing what you can do. Try to make an impact. Um, it may be different as you age and different things, right. but I think it's that. I think every day you think about how can I make an impact? How can I help? What can I do?" Um, you know, I've got some, um, I'm involved with some nutrition things across the country um, about hunger. And so I'm really passionate about that. So I think, I think it's that. I think it's continuing to be involved, continuing to figure out where, where, where you can fit and make uh, a contribution. Because I think sometimes people get retirement, it's just going to shut everything down yeah. and I'm just going to take it easy. And I think we all know that's very difficult. And I've, you know, I've seen some people retire recently and real struggle with their purpose. And I think as long as you're focused on trying to impact people's lives and, and figure out how you can do that and everybody can do that a little different way, I think that's that's the thing that I kind of get up every day and think about, okay, even the last just since I retired is what's my purpose. But I've been thinking about it for a while, just what I, what I want to do next. So. What about a book that really resonated? You just mentioned the book you just, you just finished, The Christian uh, yeah. About Leadership. Yeah, Clayton Christensen's How Do You Measure Your Life. It's one of my favorite books. You know, actually, I spoke at Frank's funeral and I talked about his story and what was ironic was um, uh, the story was you know he was dealing with cancer um, and uh, he spoke to a Harvard class and the, the, the theme was how do you measure your life and the class had asked him to say okay you've taught us all this business stuff but really what's life about which is really interesting so and he was dealing with his own cancer so he really talked about this idea how do you measure your life and so in Frank's life we talked about you know as you look at Frank's life you, you look at your own individual life I've always liked that. I always like leading change. You know, I come back to that. And then um, Max Dupree wrote some great books. Um, he was the head of Herman Miller in uh, Zealand, Michigan, and Leadership's an Art. Um, I used to give that to people, new leaders, all the time. That is probably my favorite book. Leadership um, is Art. Max leadership Dupree. is Art, yeah. yeah. And it's all about leadership. And again, he, he's a religious man, so there's a religious. And he talks about the covenant that we have with organizations. And what we owe the organization, and the organization owes us nothing, which is a really interesting thought. Mm -hmm. And he writes a lot about, you know, I think the first job of a leader is to, um, uh, I'm, I'm screwed up now. First job of, of a leader is to, you know, motivate people for servant leadership, and the last job of a leader is to say thank you. So he's got some great things in that book, very practical, easy read. So uh, that's usually, those are probably my go to CZ. That's a, that's a great one. I, I know you're into, uh, uh, fitness and, and wellness, obviously. How has your 
wellness regimen changed over the years? Your exercise, your eating, your sleeping? Yeah, I used to be uh, a runner, ran a lot uh, every day, and uh, I can't run anymore because uh, my knees and ankles won't do that. And I had some problems playing sports with that. So I, we walk. My wife and I walk a lot. Um, we try to walk, if we can, 16,500 steps a day. Uh, we were just on vacation, and this wouldn't be vacation for a lot of folks, but we walk 20,000 steps every day. It takes a long time. And uh, my wife always wanted me to walk with her, and I thought, just shoot me. I'm not, you know. And now I walk every day, and it's our form of exercise. Um, a lot of, um, you know, you read a lot about aging and flexibility. So, you know, TRX, medicine balls. I've always lifted weights, so I lift right. a lot of weights and um, and that. And so, yeah, I do a lot of that. And then there's a lot of, um, and again, a lot of this stuff, you know, um, you don't need a lot of money. to. I, I, I've always worked out at home. Uh, never really cared to go to a gym or other yeah. you know and obviously that probably helped with stress and oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah you know if uh, if i would uh you know tell my wife hey i'm gonna go lift weights for half an hour and she would say i'll see you in an hour and then what happens is it is such a stress reliever uh and once you start getting into it you're like work what work you know yeah. and it's always always been a great stress reliever and i get it just i feel better just feel better mentally physically when i'm in shape always have yeah, yeah. What about a historical leader that you look up to, you admire, you resonate? Obviously, you mentioned Jesus. Yeah. Is there a historical leader that said, yeah? Yeah. You know, I still look at Martin Luther King. You know, um, my uh, daughter-in-law did a fellowship in Memphis and went to the museum there. And I was just at the um, African-American Museum in D.C. Uh, over Thanksgiving. And you can just look at his impact. And then here again, he's a strong Christian pastor, strong Christian pastor who really um, was focused on social impact. And um, again, the, the, the movement he led, um, in fact, somebody was just telling me that his um, I Have a Dream speech wasn't the speech he had written. He uh, went off cuff. He went off cuff. Yeah. And then someone apparently, this, I, I, don't, I assume this is true, uh, a woman behind him said, Tell him your dream, Pastor. And so that was all off the cuff, and he spoke from his heart mm -hmm. about the need for social change. So, so when I look at again, and then um, the idea was we want to make change. We don't want to. We don't want violence. Violence happened, and it just he kind of he used his religion, he used his faith, but yet when you see his messages, it wasn't um, it wasn't like a sermon per se, in that he was quoting scripture all the time. He used his faith. And he applied it to social justice, and very powerful. I mean, I, I, I just again, we just hear his work and what he did. I mean, that's that's pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. Music. Uh, I understand you like uh, the jazz. Yeah, I love jazz. Yeah, always have. Where did that come from? Where did that start? You know, that's a good question. Um, my dad uh, was a big Johnny Cash fan, wow. so I grew up listening to Johnny. I I do not like country music. I, I you know <laughs> I I just have never Johnny think Cash to jazz. Goes yeah, no, and you know, um, you know, I think um, in college, um, uh, uh, some people I knew listened to Wyndham Hill. Do you remember Wyndham Hill, that brand? Yeah. And it was a lot of acoustic jazz. Mm -hmm. And so that rubbed off on me. And uh, my kids would still tease me that I'd used to, when we brought them to school, we'd, we'd listen to WVMV from Detroit, which was, uh, oh, he's the flautist. Um, oh, Kenny boy. G? Uh, no, he's, uh, he's from... Uh, he's from uh, I'll think of it. He's from Detroit, and he had a radio uh, show in the mornings, and uh, and so we'd listen every morning. My kids would still talk about how we punished him, listen to soft jazz as we went to school every morning. And now I like, um, you know, now with Pandora and Spotify and all that, still listen to a lot of jazz. Yeah. Uh, you know, Chris Body, people like that. I've always liked liked the jazz. Let's see if uh, let's see if we can paint a soundtrack of your life here. I'm going to ask you a couple questions about music and see if. Uh, See if you have, what comes to mind off the top of your yeah. head. What what's a song that uh, reminds you of high school, Randy? Um. Oh boy. Um. Bachman Turner Overdrive. Taking care of business. Taking care of business. <laughs> uh. And uh, my friend Greg's car with cassette tapes. Yeah. No. I. I. We used to small town America. You know, spend a lot of Friday Saturday nights in his cars going up and down Main Street. So yeah. Do you ever have the eight tracks? Uh, oh yeah, eight tracks. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sorry, I said cassettes. That was the next generation. Right. Eight tracks. Yeah, 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 it was eight tracks. All right. Uh, what about a, an artist or an album that you've listened to the most? 
Oh, boy. Uh, more recently, Patrick O'Hearn. Uh, he is um, kind of a new agey sort of. It's a cross between, um, uh, you know, show tunes, the, the, the um, orchestra for a lot of great movies. And yet it's got kind of a new age flavor to it. Very relaxing, you know. Um, you know, I'd listen to it. That's what I'm listening to right now, probably more than anything. What about a song that fires you up? Oh, boy, a song that fires me up. Um, you know, I'd probably go back to some of those 70s songs. You know, I I, um, I do listen to a lot of more Christian music these days. And, uh, you know, there's there's some Christian artists I like a lot, Jeremy Camp and others that... that um, I actually used to, when I worked out, used to listen to more rock, and I listen to more, um, you know, jazz and and uh, religious music, and that that kind of cranks me up. What chills you out? Is there a song? I know if you're in jazz, there's probably a lot, but yeah, you know, there's um, this Patrick O'Hearn's, you know, he's got a station, and there's a lot of there's um, there's like music from the Shangsha Redemption, mm-hmm. uh, some of the music from Risky Business, um, if you um, you know, ta- uh, Tangerine Dream, Love, Love on a Train. Yeah, this, that kind of stuff. So very, um, that kind of, that's really stuff that really relaxes me. Uh, uh, you can get a little depressed if you listen to it too long, you know, because it's that kind of music. But yeah, no, so that's always been good. And I think it just um, always makes me reflective, I think, you know, more than anything else. If you had to do, if you were going to do a karaoke song, now that you're retired, you can go into bars and do yeah, karaoke, yeah, yeah, okay? Yeah, you yeah, can right. do that. But if you were going to do a karaoke song, yeah. what would you say? Oh, boy. Um that is a really good question. Oh, oh there's a Billy Joel song. Um, um, yeah, I'm just gonna. I'm uh, gonna um, oh shoot, I have it on my playlist. You know, probably be Billy Joel. Song. Billy Joel. Song. Yeah, or the Piano Man. One of those. You know, <laughs> those those are great stories. Uh, yeah, you know, Piano Man would be probably right up there as well. Sure. It's a great story, um, and it's the power of the story, not the yeah, music. It's the power of the sure. story. Yeah. What about a memorable concert experience? Oh boy. Um, you know, um, um, I think it was the first concert we had in Promenade Park, and the which was, um, you know, um, I don't even remember was it the like a Mitch Ryder and this. It could have been Mitch Ryder. No, that wasn't Mitch Ryder. Um, um, we had Steve Terrell early. It wasn't that one, but it was like probably the first rock concert we had. It was ironic because it was just seeing people there. And enjoying that space because we took some great. Remember, work. A thirty-eight special brought in well, a big crowd. Yeah, they, they, that's a. They, we've learned a lot about what what brings crowds. <laughs> and there was a person there, and I'm not going to name the person who was in sheer opposition to our project. And they were they were there dancing with a beer in their hand. And I thought, what the heck? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was those were good. And it wasn't so much the concert experience as like look at people celebrating here, this great community, and what a great thing to do. Yeah. yeah. Let's say your good friend Joe Napoli needs a uh, uh, a celebrity batter, and you're walking from the dugout heading to the plate. What would you want the walk-up song to be? Oh, um, you know, it would probably be uh, probably uh, something like "Love on a Train" uh, from uh, Risky Business. That's uh, you can tell what I'm listening to these days. Yes. Uh, so yeah, those kind of songs. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, uh, a couple more big picture questions, Randy. This has been great. Um, I know you're a golfer, and if there were mulligans in life, what decision, interaction, or situation would you use that mulligan on? Um, just in business? Anything. Anything. You know, um, I look back. Uh, you, you always look at things that, um, you know, got away from you. So when we, um, we, we historically, Promatica didn't have a good relationship with St. Luke's, and uh, they were in a situation where they needed some help. We decided to talk to him. It all worked out. And then we got, um, you know, hammered by the Federal Trade Commission. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what happened was we were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, Our lawyers out of Chicago said they they wouldn't even look at the deal because these had been approved everywhere. And so as we got into it, um, and they were, it was a different FTC at that time, and they were out to stop us. And our lawyers kept saying, no, 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 we're fine, we're fine. And uh, in retrospect, had we not done a merger, um, they would still be part of Promedica today. And, uh, you know, great people uh, love that that hospital, love the people there, really provide a great service for that part of the community. I, I look back at those things. Had mm-hmm. we done it a little different way, um, the, the outcome would have been different, you know. So I think it's stuff like that. Um, you know, um, 
I don't live in the past too much, um, my wife would tell you. So um, I don't look back. And, you know, uh, you talk about in the arena. So Teddy Roosevelt, you know, it's okay. it's you, 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 do what you, you do what you can do. Um, you make decisions. You um, do the best you can. And what, what you hope is um, on, the, on the average it turns out well because it's easy to sit back and complain and easy to point fingers. And there are lots of people who do that in communities. But really it is that, the people who go out, take a risk, try to make some change and try to do the best things you can. So I don't look back at a lot of stuff and say woulda, shoulda, coulda uh, mm-hmm. because it is what it is. And you just push forward and uh, tomorrow's a new day. And you begin to look up the things that can be accomplished in this region. And you go like, all right, let's focus on that. What are you most proud of? You know, I think the most, I'm most proud of the people at Prometic. You know, I think um, I am just always amazed. So when you find a person who's worked in an organization for 40 years, just humbling, whether they are helping, whether they're in a service capacity, whether they're a nurse or a physical therapist or a pharmacist, that they gave 40 years of their life, um, as we always say, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, every night, every holiday, uh, and they're there. And uh, they're, they're spending time away from their family. Um, you begin to look at nurses and physicians, um, the sacrifices they make, especially physicians. Um, they uh, spend a long time. You know, when, when you're getting out of school at 30 years of age and you didn't, that's not easy up to 30 years of age. And yeah, you made a little bit of money to pay the bills and you made tons of sacrifices and now you're out. And so life is, so we look at a physician, oh, they, you know, um, they, they have all these advantages. Mm-hmm. They make tremendous sacrifices. So when I look at that, it's, that's just humbling. I mean, I just don't know. You can never thank people. How do you thank a person for yeah. spending 40, 50 years? We had a doctor, uh, Pierre Vauty, retire, and he spent you know time with really sick kids his whole life. He probably saw, pick a number, four or five hundred thousand kids in his mm-hmm. life. You know, how do you thank somebody for that? You know, give him a plaque. You know, it's that's it, just humbling. You know, and it's just you see people do that, um, and and I think that happens in a lot of careers. But that that's always the most um, humbling part of all these jobs. Looking back over your the span of your life, Randy, is there a defining moment? A person situation that puts your life on a certain trajectory yeah it would be carl wagner asking me what i was okay. going to be doing at 50 years age. that's the finding moment for sure completely pivoted and uh you know t- you know kind of thought we knew what we were doing really didn't and it and grace of god it all worked out and i think the thing is it's just been a great career um very dynamic healthcare changes all the time mm-hmm. it's a big industry in this country it needs to change and again, I just go back every place I worked, the, the people um, and some of the things that they did and, you know, people getting up every day. And again, it's a community asset. It's, you know, by and large, uh, hospitals are nonprofits, you know, so they need to make money. Yep. So, yeah, yeah, sure. you know yeah. But uh, nonprofits, mission-based organizations with tons of great community volunteers and then people who get up every day. So that, that, that's been a really tremendous, um, you know, career for yeah. us in the 40 years that we had to do that. And so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think when I look at that, I think like uh, I've been very, very fortunate to have that pivot in life. Last one here. How do you want to be remembered, Randy? Or back to the eulogy part. Yeah. You know, um, I would say um, I would hope that um, people would remember, um, uh, you know, my tenure as being part of a team of people at a special time in, in Toledo, Ohio. And there's a whole bunch of people. And that we were able to work together and do some things to move the community ahead, uh, hopefully impacting people in a positive way, not only from uh, a mission standpoint, but a vision standpoint. And then also uh, uh, impacting their daily lives, that something happened out of all this work that made their lives better, that they were able to navigate life, that they were able to provide opportunities for their their family and, and kids that they want to provide. And that there are things that came out of all this work that, that really did impact people. Yeah. That would be a good uh, exclamation point to a full life, right? Right. That would be. Well, Randy, this has been uh, wonderful. I really appreciate you sharing your life story, your leadership path, and just who you are as a servant leader and your impact uh, to our community has been significant. And the sacrifices you made personally 
to make that happen. Uh, we thank you because um, every time I'm downtown, you come to mind. And um, we're just very fortunate that you, the ProMedica, the Heart of ProMedica Committee, and then all the other uh, civic and community leaders that have come together to do all the great improvements. And then the ones that are to come, right? Because you never really finish, right? right. You, yeah, just, yep. you just keep going. But you've put uh, our community in a great spot. And we really look forward to seeing what your next chapter is. Yep, it's going to be exciting. We've been uh, blessed so far. And again, I think when you begin to look at the, the great people uh, in our region, I think there's great things ahead. So I'm excited yeah. to see where that goes. And thanks for letting me spend some time with you today. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.